Good morning, everyone. Why don't we start by having you turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 13. As was mentioned, my name is Stephen Camille, and this evening we'll be sharing with you a bit about the ministry of what's called medical evangelism, with the emphasis on the evangelism side, but not negating the uh, needs for mercy as well. And we'll talk about the life in Togo, but we'll save that for this evening. I won't take much time up with our biography. But one thing that was true about our family's first term is that it was a divided first term. I don't mean that in a bad way, but that it was spent first in language school and then in the actual work. And our language school, for many reasons, was held in France uh, because we've tried as members of the team to have language training in Togo and it didn't work too well. So our family spent some time in the nation of France. And during our time in Europe, we had the opportunity to see many historical sites. And the ones that stood out the most to me were the churches, uh, these great buildings of worship. We saw many historic uh, centers of worship. Some of these buildings were grand in their design, uh, buildings that took literally generations to construct. And all these buildings that we saw communicated something about the people who worshiped there and the priorities that they had. There were giant structures built to fulfill a vow to Mary that we saw in the city of Lyon that was made by people who survived a plague. There were soaring windows full of stained glass and broad walls covered with ancient murals to illustrate stories of the Bible to those who could not read them on their own, nor were given the privilege, honestly, to read them. I visited places where along the sides of these uh, centers were many different statues and the lights were down low and people would light candles and they would say prayers to people who weren't Jesus. And these were sad things to see, and yet they did say something, again, about the priorities and uh, thoughts of the people who gathered there. We've been in long buildings laid out in the shape of the cross that in the front and center of the church was a large altar. And, of course, we got to visit the historic Protestant churches as well, churches that were reclaimed from Rome by men like uh, Calvin and Luther. And it was very interesting to me to see what they decided to keep and what they decided to jettison because those buildings were still magnificent but they were very very different as far as the things that they valued and the things they prioritized it said something about the reformers and what their priorities were and if we're honest this building says something about lebanon bible fellowship church and what it prioritizes and how it imagines worship is supposed to be and if I, as a visitor, can give you an outside perspective, when I stand in this room, I see a room that is constructed to be a, a bit wider rather than long so that the people can gather close. I see a room that is full of light, both natural and electric, to allow people to spend time seeing the word before them, that as they're hearing it, they are not just engaged passively, but they can actively read the word as it is being preached and proclaimed. I see a church that when it's time to sing is not just, not just spectators seeing something done up front, but is participating shoulder to shoulder with their brothers and sisters in Christ in the worship of our Lord. And that is a wonderful thing to see. And at the front, in the center, stands the pulpit. The pulpit is not here to exalt the man who stands behind it, but it is to say something about the priority and the centrality of the Word of God and the importance of the proclamation of the Word of God. There is a grave responsibility to proclaiming the Word of God, one that I'm sure your pastors share and one that I share as well. But the Word of God itself is central to the Christian life. According to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, we've been born again, he says, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. You see, those who come to Christ alone, those who trust in his death for them, 
and who live in hope of his resurrection receive by God's grace alone life. A new life that is begun by a new birth. A new birth that, like the old birth, prepares them to live into the world in which they were born. Let me explain. You see, the only reason why you could be here in Lebanon, Pennsylvania, is because you were born into this world. And I know that's obvious, but consider some of the implications. The only reason why you can see the sunset or hear a baby's laugh, the only reason why you can taste an apple or smell dust after rain is because you were born into a world where those things exist. And the only way you can experience righteousness and divine love and spiritual blessing is if you've been born into a world where those things exist. If you've been born into a world where God is your father, then you can delight in God, you can pray boldly to your father, you can experience the peace of Christ. These things are impossible unless someone is born again. And that new birth that Peter talks about results in a fully formed but an immature spiritual creature. A creature that inherits spiritual qualities that mark him as a child of God. A creature that continues to grow by drinking deeply from the word of life. And according to Peter, that entire life starts with a seed, what he calls an imperishable seed. And Peter wasn't the first one to hear the word of God compared to, wasn't the first one to proclaim the word of God as being comparable to a seed, but he was there to hear it. You see, Peter was there in Galilee, standing beside Jesus as he taught in a house. He heard him teach about the Holy Spirit and about idle words. Peter heard Jesus talk about the sign of Jonah and how he was the fulfillment of it. Peter heard Jesus label him and the other disciples as his true family that does the will of God. And then he follows Jesus outside, and he stands beside him in a boat as he hears Jesus proclaim what Matthew labels for the first time as parables. And Jesus remains after the crowd has dispersed, and he's able to ask questions of our Lord and clarify what is meant by many of these parables. And here is what Peter heard. This is found in Matthew chapter 13, verses 3 to 9. A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell among the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. This teaching, which is frequently called the parable of the sower, is the first of what have also been termed the kingdom parables, a subset of the parables. These parables help us develop our spiritual insight, because as we've already heard, we are people, if we have trusted in Christ, who have been born twice. The first birth was into a natural world, a world of physical laws and material objects, a world of commerce and diplomacy, and a world of conflict and domination. A world that, despite its vast terrain and its numerous nations and its thousands of languages, is ruled by one who Paul labels as the god of this world, and that god of this world is a blinding influence over it. And yet at the same time, Christians have been born into a spiritual kingdom. It's not a kingdom located out there somewhere remote, and it's not entirely future, although some elements of it are fulfilled in the future. But according to Jesus in Luke chapter 17, verse 21, this kingdom is in our midst. It is here, it is now, and yet it is not part of this world. 
And so you have two kingdoms that exist side by side on this earth, and they are in opposition to one another. This is most clearly seen in the second of the kingdom parables, that is the parable of the weeds. For in that story, there's a man who plants a field, and he's waiting for it to grow, but he has an enemy who comes in, and he sneaks in, and he starts planting a bunch of weeds amongst his wheat, or that's often called tares. And the weeds look very similar to the wheat itself as they're immature. Now, he could send his men in there to pull up these weeds, but in so doing, some of the wheat's going to be destroyed in the process. So what does he do? He delays his judgment. When the crop matures, the differences will be clear. And so he has his men wait until the crop is ready, and then they go in and begin the harvest. So why doesn't God bring his full force of judgment against a world opposed to him? Because he still has people in that world. Because he has a kingdom full of people and the harvest is not yet ready. To rush the process would be to uproot some of his crop. There are people today in this world who have not yet trusted in Christ, but they will. And God is patient even in his judgments. That is the message of that parable. There are two kingdoms existing side by side. A kingdom of heaven and a kingdom of earth. A kingdom of death and a kingdom of life. A destructive kingdom that was founded in pride and ruled by the prince of the power of the air and the eternal kingdom of God established and governed by the Lamb who in humility suffered death upon a cross. Both kingdoms exert influence in this world in one direction or in another. To discern what is really going on in this life then takes spiritual understanding. And that is what the kingdom parables give us. They give us some insight into what is going on in this world. How can the kingdom of heaven ever hope to grow in a world so opposed to it? Well, it once consisted of just a tiny group of believers hiding in an upper room following the crucifixion of their leader. It didn't seem possible or likely, but the kingdom parables tell us that the kingdom of God is like yeast. It doesn't take much. When you compare the amount of yeast you add to a loaf of bread compared to the flour, it is infinitesimally small. But if you give it time and give it the right conditions, the yeast multiplies and spreads throughout the entire loaf. That is a picture of the kingdom. What is the value of this kingdom? Well, it's incalculable. We have two parables about that. If you sold everything you had is basically the message, it would be a bargain. And yet you can't get there by selling things you have because it is free. How are people brought into the kingdom? Well, it's like fishing, but not the kind you're probably thinking of. Because there's no hooks and there's no bait. There's no enticement or trickery to bring the fish in. It is more like spreading a net as widely and broadly as possible. That is a picture of evangelism, spreading the word as widely and thoroughly as possible and bringing in what providentially God has brought to you. Who are the people of God? Well, they're the ones who are looking for his coming. It's, a court, it's like a bridal party waiting for the groom's arrival. Those who have been prepared for his return so that whenever it may be, they will be found ready. That is the characteristic of the people who are part of the kingdom of God. So what about the parable of the sower? Well, let's consider this story a little bit more closely. You see, there's a man, and he's a farmer who has a plot of land. And the land in the first century Galilee was divided into very small portions. This is subsistence farming we're talking about, not commercial. They didn't have any of the equipment we have, and they didn't have the space. They were just eking by. And the various plots were not divided by fences or even walls. They were divided by paths because people would walk right along the sides of these fields and occasionally right through the middle of them. And as a result of traveling from one place to another, the soil in those areas got really packed down. It became well-worn 
and thoroughly packed and hard. The soil, as a rule, was rocky. It had limestone deposits that weren't that deep beneath the surface. One of the predominant weeds of the area is called the globe thistle, which has a large blue flower about the size of a baseball. It is covered in irritating hairs, and it is very difficult to remove. And it can thrive even in the dry and relatively nutrient-poor soil of that area and that region. And so most of the time, it just gets stuck there and stays. So our farmer, well, he goes out into his field. It is time for him to plant. He is likely planting a grain like wheat or barley or something along those lines, and he will have a, slat, a sack slung over his shoulder, and he will be engaged in what is called broadcast sowing because he's going to throw things out into the air and let them fall where they may. He's going to reach into his bag and he's going to toss the seed that he has over as large an area as possible, as large an area as he can because he doesn't wish to leave any part of his land unsown because he needs as much of it as possible. So he will spread the crop widely. He may have plowed before, he may plow after planting the seed. Both of those were common in that day and age. But he's going to make sure that his seed is scattered through the area. And because he does not limit his planting to a certain area of the land, some of the seed is going to fall on that hard-packed path that people walk along like he and his neighbors. And the seed's never going to grow there. It is too packed down, so the seed is going to lie on the surface and never penetrate. And the birds of the air are going to come down and have an easy meal of unplanted grain. Another portion of the seed is going to fall in soil, and it's going to look pretty good. In fact, it seems to be really good at the beginning because it's going to sprout up quickly and, and be impressive in its initial growth. But the problem here is that the soil is thin because there's a rock that's underneath it. It overlays a deposit of limestone. It has trapped the water in that area, and so it can grow quickly, but it can't develop a root. And so the season goes on, and the days grow hotter, and the sun beats down on the early plants, and these seedlings are unable to establish roots, so they wither and they die because they cannot survive the heat. Other seeds fall among the thistles. The soil isn't nutrient-dense, and what resources it has is already spoken for. They don't have much hope here. It is infested by weeds. It is not going to allow them to be removed because the weeds are so plentiful, and so the crop here honestly does not stand a chance, and so it too dies early without bearing any fruit. But all is not lost, for some of the seed falls among a good soil. This seed is not the soil is not packed down, it is not underlaid by rock, it is not infested by weeds, it is good soil, and with time and care, it will produce. The seed will sprout, it will grow, and it will bear fruit. The resultant yield may vary. Some crops will have several seeds on a single ear. Some will have multiple ears. But the result is going to be sufficient for the farmer's purpose. And that's why he goes out and he sows. And as Peter learned on the day that this parable was first taught, the seed here is the word of God. Jesus explicitly labels it as such, as the, king, as the word of the kingdom in verse 19, where he starts explaining the parable to his disciples. Jesus calls this the word of the kingdom. The parable of the sower is given to help us understand what happens when the word goes forth into the world. For as we live the Christian life, as we raise our families, as we participate in church life, as we seek to be salt and light in our communities, as we send out missionaries and receive them back for reports, we're going to notice things. We're going to see people being confronted and encountering the word of God whether directly from our mouths or not. And we're going to see these people confronted with the truth, and we're going to see how they respond. 
And these responses may not always make sense to us on a superficial level because we cannot see what is going on beneath the surface. We may be puzzled when the words that mean so much to us are met with blank looks from others. We may be distressed to come to church and find that someone who initially showed such promise and such enthusiasm has up and left and no longer comes. We may be discouraged to find that some of those who claim to follow Christ are so tightly involved with the priorities and issues of this world that they don't seem to care about spiritual things. They become entrenched in the ways of the world, and we may struggle to understand what is going on. What we need to do is to develop our spiritual sight. We need to listen to Jesus' parable, like this one, and allow it to inform us. For according to Jesus' interpretation of this parable, when the word goes forth into the world, some of it will land on hearts that are hardened to the gospel. Jesus says as much in, act, in verse chapter uh, 19 of Matthew 13. He says that there will be those who hear the word of the kingdom, and they will not understand it. Their hearts are like a well-worn path. The seed simply cannot penetrate. It only lies on the surface, and the devil, like a bird, will come and snatch away the truth. This is easily as those birds ate the seeds in the parable. This does not mean that these people are unintelligent. It does not even mean that the explanation of the gospel was not sufficient. They may have been presented with the pure word of truth. The problem is their heart. They may hear the words, but they do not understand them. One example of this historically is a uh, man by the name of William Pitt. William Pitt was the youngest, and still is actually, the youngest person ever to serve as Prime Minister of England. And he was a close friend of another parliamentarian named William Wilberforce, whose name may sound familiar to some of you. He was an evangelical Christian who led the movement to stop the slave trade in England, spent his entire career doing it. Well, he and William Pitt were friends, and he cared for the soul of his friend William. And so after much interest and much talking, he finally convinced him to come to church. And as they sat in church side by side, they heard the pastor pr clearly presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ, and Wilberforce's heart was raised because he knew that this message was so vital and important to his friend to hear. And as they got out, this man who was brilliant and intelligent, who learned Latin and Greek in his uh, age of five or six, and was becoming the youngest prime minister in the history of England's time, he walks out next to Wilberforce and looks at him and says, you know, I didn't understand a single word that man said. It wasn't because it wasn't presented well, and it wasn't because Pitt was unintelligent. It was because his heart was well packed down and hardened. And as best as we can tell from history, it never became softer. And if we're honest, this is, honest, this is the natural state of man. In between this parable, which runs from verses 3 to 9, and the explanation of the parable that goes from verses 18 to 23, Jesus explains something else to his disciples. He explains the reason for his parables. These parables, Jesus says, are given to preserve what he calls the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. If you have another translation, you may read it saying the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but secrets probably better captures the meaning here, because the truths of the kingdom of heaven are not able to be discovered. They're not able to be figured out by someone skilled in logic. They're not uncovered by a detective looking for clues. The Bible is not full of codes that need deciphering. The secrets of the kingdom of God belong to him alone, and he gives them as an act of grace. The ability to read the scriptures with understanding is given. It's not earned. It is a gift from God to his disciples. That is why Jesus says in verse 11, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. 
It is why in a totally different passage, when, Jesus, when Peter finally confesses that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of the living God, Jesus responds in Matthew chapter 16, verse 17, with these words, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. These things are revealed by the grace of God. It is part of the new birth. What of those who have not received the new birth? What of those whose only life is the natural one? Well, Paul describes such people. He does this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, where he says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. When a natural person hears the word, he does not understand it. In fact, those words strike him as foolish. And that meshes well with Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 13, verses 11 to 13. He explains that his parables had two effects. To those who were given the gift of understanding, the response was to increase their knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom. But to those who it was not given, the parables came with judgment. Even the things that they did understand, Jesus said, would be taken away from them. We see many examples of this in our modern world. We'll give someone, we'll change the names a little bit to uh, preserve the guilty. But one is the name, a young man by the name of Abe. And Abe is the adult son of a pastor. You can call his pastor's, his father, uh, Tara. And Tara is no poor pastor. He's no faithless shepherd. He guards, he drinks from the word of God deeply personally, and he explains it carefully and thoroughly. He guards his sheep against error and feeds them through the word, and many have been blessed through his ministry. He regularly practices hospitality, bringing other saints into his home, and that is the home that Abe grew up in. He heard that truth. The seed of the word was scattered over his heart, but apparently the ground was hard and packed down. The truth never seemingly penetrated, and he was left without any understanding. How do we know? Well, he's not just content to reject his father's teaching. Abe is using, uses the internet to spread lots of videos where he talks about the things that he thinks he understands, and he shares such gems as knowing is the enemy of knowledge. Or, since Jesus said whoever keeps his life will lose it, well, the most saved people must be the unsaved. Or, God wanting people to worship him is a sign of God's insecurity. These are the truths that he thinks about and the things that he holds dear, but these are only some of the least absurd of his quotes. Because I hear these and I'm left wondering, what messages did he hear? And what Bible did he read? Because somehow he missed the point entirely. This is the man who grew up hearing the truth, but he never understood it, and now he can only spread confusion because that is all he has. But that is only one type of soil, because when the word goes forth into the world, it will also fall upon shallow hearts. This is the second soil of which Jesus spoke, the rocky soil. In the parable, the seed here spreads and blossoms quickly. It never develops a root, and therefore it shrivels as soon as the heat and dies as soon as the heat rises. This is the person who doesn't immediately reject the word. In fact, they hear it and they respond with delight. They respond with enthusiasm. But their understanding is only superficial. It lacks deep roots. The plant is not established. This is the person who often shows great promise, who's dynamic. We see such a one and we have great expectations that they're going to do something important for the kingdom. But we don't see beneath the surface. We don't see anything but the outside. We see the seedling, and we have no idea that there is no root deep in the ground. It doesn't become obvious at the outset. Early on, everything appears fine. 
But then the sun rises and the heat increases and the rootless plant cannot continue. In verse 21, Jesus interprets this for us. He says that the sun's heat is tribulation and or persecution. Tribulation, that is affliction and distress. Tribulation is the difficulties that we encounter in this life, the injuries, the illnesses, the disappointments, the failures, the hard things, the difficult things that come into our life can be categorized as tribulations. But then there's also persecutions. These are, this is the purposeful opposition that someone receives when he or she claims to follow Christ. It can be as mild as mockery or severe as the loss of life. It includes being shunned, being deprived of livelihood, being driven from one's community, or any one of the numerous types of pressure and punishment for daring to turn away from the kingdom of this world. That is persecution. In tribulations and persecutions, the presence of these unpleasant things should not be surprising to us. And further, what should not be surprising to us is that one of the effects of tribulations and persecutions is that to expose those who lack a depth to their faith, those who have no root. For when life gets difficult, those who have no root, they leave and they never come back. Not too long ago, they would have left without a trace. We never would have heard what happened about them, but today we live in the information age and everyone feels the need to share personal details with the world. And so they can share their thoughts, they can post and they can tweet and they can present videos so that you can understand a little bit about what's going on. And in many of these testimonials, we can see the truth of the Lord's parable here. We can read of a man like I did by the name of James, who was once a professor, and he described the prior relationship he had with the church and how now his conception of God was that God was too small to deal with his grief when he lost his mother. Now, God did not change in size when this man's mother died, and he did not become insufficient to deal with grief. What this exposed was that the man had a lack of depth or a lack of root. Or consider the example of a man that we'll call Josh. Josh claimed the faith as a very young man and was pushed to the forefront of Christianity. He wrote books, he preached messages, he even uh, took the pastorate of a church for a year. And yet, along the way, he also encountered stinging criticism. His words were called harmful, which is honestly relatively mild as persecution goes, but it was enough to expose him as lacking in depth because when he received that criticism, he responded apologetically and said he was sorry and moved away from the faith and now denies any connection with Christ at all. It shouldn't surprise us that people turn away from Christ in the time of stress because those might be people who have no depth, but the surprising thing to me is how little opposition it sometimes takes to expose that type of person. But yet there is a third type of soil. For when the word goes forth into this world, it will also encounter conflicted hearts. This is the seed that Jesus described as falling among thorns. And again, Jesus interprets this for us as well. He does this in verse 22 of Matthew 13. He describes those seeds as ones being sown among thorns, as being those who, when they hear the word, nevertheless find themselves unable to obey it. For they're distracted. They're distracted by two things. The first is that they are distracted by the cares of this world, or present age, and the second is the deceitfulness of riches. The cares of this world, what are those? Those are the anxieties and the priorities of our society. What are the things that our neighbors are worried about? What are the things they would do anything to avoid? Those are their anxieties. What are the things they seek? What are the things they talk about? What do they work for? What do they trade their time and their money for? Those are their priorities. 
And taken together, the anxieties and the priorities, together we have the cares of this world. And the pursuit of these cares can distract from following Christ. They can hinder the life that the word should bring. And along with that, along with the cares and the anxieties and the priorities of this world, we also find weeds that represent the deceitfulness of riches. The kingdom of this world has different cares than the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of this world has a different source of security. The security of this world is found in riches, in money, in houses, in wealth. In our world, wealth is supposed to equal financial, is supposed to equal security, right? That's what we're told. That's why our financial centers are full of magnificent and tall and grand buildings. That's why banks and financial institutions tout their long history and their consistency. That's why they carry names such as Black Rock and Crown Castle. That's why the symbol for Prudential is the Rock at Gibraltar, and the one for Fidelity is a pyramid, because they want to convey strength and stability and security. And the Lord entrusts us with resources, doesn't he? We are stewards of those things that God gives us. That is not a problem. The problem is not the things. The problem is the deceitfulness of riches. It is the deception that tells this world that your life would be better if you just had them, just had that thing. The lie that your family would get along better if you just didn't have to live quite so frugally. The falsehood that just a little bit more and all your problems will disappear. That is the deceit. And it's for good reason that Jesus said it is impossible to live to serve two masters. You're only going to be able to live to serve one you're only going to be able to love one. You're only going to be able to be devoted to one. And that's why he says you cannot serve God and money. You can't serve the two masters. So the soil here can only sustain one plant. It can be the fruit or it can be the thistles. It cannot be both. And so you will encounter people who hear the word and they will admit to the truth of it. But they will honestly have other priorities and other anxieties. They will make excuses like the people Jesus describes in yet another parable. This is found in Luke chapter 14, where he describes a man who gives a banquet and he invites many people to come, and they all have excuses why they can't. One had bought a field and he preferred to go and survey it. Another had a bunch of oxen and he wanted to tend to them. Another stayed away because of his family. These were people, according to the parable in Luke chapter 14, who were invited to eat in the kingdom of God. And they couldn't do it because of the cares of this world or because of the deceitfulness of riches. And that's a reality we see in our world today as well. But thankfully, there is another soil. There is the fourth one. And I should say at this point that these are not mathematical equations. It's not 25% this and 25% that and 25% the third and 25% the fourth. They vary based on time and place and how God is working in that place. It's not a percentage but we can praise God that when the word goes forth into the world, it will absolutely bear forth fruit. It may not sprout up as instantly as the rocky soil. It may not have as attractive flowers as the globe thistle has, but the seed that falls on good ground will sprout, it will grow, and it will bear fruit. It will take patience, because, but you will know where the good ground is because that is where the fruit will be. You can, it will endure the sun's heat, the plant will persist because it has a root. The soil will nourish the seed rather than the weeds. It will bear fruit and bring delight to the sower's heart. This soil, Jesus tells us in verse 23, is the man who not only hears the word, but he understands it. And remember that understanding is given by God himself. It is a gift of grace. It is a sign of the new birth. 
Blessed are those whose eyes truly see and whose ears truly hear. It is not that those who understand are spared tribulation or persecution. They will likely bear it longer and to a higher degree than those who have no root who wilt away quickly. But they will persist. It is not that they will not have the things from the world around them competing for their attention. They will have those just as much as everyone else, but they will focus on the truth and persist in in understanding the word of God. They will have their eyes fixed on Jesus despite the deceitfulness of riches, despite their encounters with the cares of this world. Their eyes will be fixed on him and their commitment will be to his truth. That is what characterizes the fourth soil. They will bear fruit. Some of this fruit may be the development of virtues, such as love, joy, peace, and patience. Some of this fruit may be found in lives that are in other lives that are encouraged in godly living by those who are bearing fruit. They will encourage one another to live as God has told them to do. Some fruit may be found in children raised in the fear of the Lord. Some fruit may be found in lost sheep all over this world, hearing the voice of their Savior, being discipled in the word, and bearing fruit themselves. Some may bear a little, some may bear a lot, but all of God's, but God's crop will bear fruit. And so when we go out into the world and when we share the word, we should not be surprised or dismayed at the various responses that are there. There are spiritual realities that go on beneath the surface that we may not be able to see directly. It is not for us to know what goes on in the hearts of others. So I don't want anyone going away this morning and playing a game of guess the soil. And I want you going to lunch and start saying, okay, that's rocky soil, that's weedy soil, that's hard soil. That is not given to us. It is given to us to share the word and to spread it as broadly as possible and to trust that God will bring forth the results that he does. We're not supposed to judge the others based on that because we don't have the wisdom to know that. All we have enough wisdom to do is to trust that God will do what is right according to his timeline, not ours. We need to recognize that the church is full of people who did not understand the word initially until the day they did. We do need to understand that there are stories of those who once failed in the face of trial who did come back. Peter himself is an example of those. We need to understand that there are those who vainly search for satisfaction in this world only to return to the Father repentant for frittering away those years. So we're not in a position to ultimately judge someone's fate based on the glimpse of how they respond to the word the one time we see them. But we also should not be discouraged or disappointed when we don't see the results we expect or we want. God is the one who is sovereign over his word. God is the one who is going to give his fruit in his time and in his place. We need to understand the varied responses that happen when the word goes forth into this world. We are not to become confused when we see people misunderstand the word. We are not to fall in despair when they reject what we hold dear. We are to look for the fruit that he has promised to us. For Jesus has told us that these things will happen, but he has also promised to us that his word will bear fruit. It is for us to trust in the Lord, for it is his word that goes forth into the world. It is his word that will not return to him empty. It is for us to share his word with our families, with our neighbors, and with those across the world. And it will bring forth fruit, and it will sprout, and it will give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. The word of the Lord will accomplish what he has purposed, and it will succeed in the thing for which he has sent it. That is the promise that God has given to us, and that is the hope that we can have 
Not that we need to scheme and reflect on how to share the word, not that we need to fall into despair when the world seems to go in a contrary way, but we need to know that the word of God is living and active, and when it goes forth into the world, it will bear forth fruit in our lives and in the lives of the people around us. So let us have eyes to see and let us have ears to hear. Let us have hands and feet that are willing to obey and do the work of our Lord in this world. That is the message from the word today. Thank you.